0: I'd like to thank you for joining us to the third of our four NC Broadband Matters webinar events. I'm Krista Vinson, president of NC Broadband Matters. Today we have a sold out session. The team and I are proud to be able to do today what we started this organization to do, come together and share solutions around common challenges. With better understanding of data, legal limitations, and other factors that we'll be talking about today, we know that North Carolina can overcome the lack of connectivity that unfortunately characterizes so many of our communities, especially in today's challenged environment. I invite you to learn more about NC Broadband Matters at our website, ncheartsgigabit.com. You'll also find a resource page, links to our team's bios and our new podcast series hosted by well-known community broadband expert Christopher Mitchell. We're very fortunate to be joined today by several other broadband experts for our much anticipated session on the North Carolina policy context and how to develop data and mapping tools to enhance your community broadband plan. First, we'll hear from Aaron Winia, Chief Legislative Counsel at the NC League of Municipalities, who will give us a very clear and actionable understanding of what's going on at the North Carolina General Assembly and the legal landscape for local broadband planning. Next up is Brian Rathbone, partner with Broadband Catalyst, who will take us on a tour of deeply informative data and analysis that he's prepared including an important new project with the UNC Chapel Hill student body and faculty. Following Aaron and Brian, we're pleased to be joined today by Stephanie Jane Edwards with MCNC, who will uh, talk to us for a few moments about what MCNC has planned for the Middle Mile. Finally, we'll be joined by this webinar series co-organizer, Deb Watts, who is also a partner at Broadband Catalyst as well as vice president of NC Broadband Matters. He'll be discussing the homework gap and rural telehealth, both of which are issues that have been amplified in the current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We'll take a question or two directly after Brian Uh, Erin and Stephanie Jane's presentations if those questions come in. Um, And then Deb will pose a couple of questions to our panel, if you will, and continue straight into Q&A. If you do have questions and you're joining us by phone, please send an email to info at ncharts, with an S, gigabit.com. Catherine Rice, one of our NC Broadband Matters co-founders, will be standing by to monitor our inbox. If you've joined us via the webinar platform, you can find the question feature on the right side of your screen. So this is a sold-out session. You may want to listen to it more than one time. We will be posting the full webinar recording on our website in a few days, and a link to that recording will be available in your email following today's broadcast. Thank you again very much for joining us, and now I'd like to invite Erin Winia to share her screen with us.
1: All right. Krista, can you just give me a thumbs up that everyone can see my screen now?
0: We're almost
1: there. Okay. I think I probably had to accept your invitation. There Let me know when we're ready. Mm-hmm. Okay. Y'all, this is the fun of... Uh, Doing these types of presentations remotely during COVID, and I'm delighted to have been invited to join you today. My name is Erin Winia, like Krista said. Uh, I have worked at the North Carolina League of Municipalities representing cities and towns before our state legislature at this point for well over a decade. Um, I think I'm halfway into my 11th year at the league, and so. In that time, I've been able to cover a lot of different types of issues, but probably there have been very few that come close to the broadband issue in terms of its ability to cut across all types of policy areas um, and its, its critical importance to local economies. Uh, and so that is the driving interest from the city officials that I represent and their interest in getting better broadband in their communities. This effort uh, that I'm about to describe to you today started several years back. Um, we came out of a legislative long session and really decided at that point that the environment seemed ripe for mounting a really large campaign that would ultimately lead to rolling back some of the prohibitions that are currently in our law regarding uh, the ability of local governments. And when I say local governments, I mean both cities and counties. Um, We have a lot of prohibitions against local governments in the state from even building broadband infrastructure. So this has been an ongoing effort, one that I think you all would agree has uh, really come to the fore here during the COVID-19 Crisis, and um, so that's the backdrop for the presentation today. Uh, what I plan on doing is talking about some key terms just to make sure we're all we're all oriented to this discussion and this and have the same understanding. Talk through a couple of types of technology, uh, explain to you what we mean when we say partnerships, and this is how we educate policymakers. Uh, I'll go into a little bit about the legal landscape. Uh, and then share the role of local leaders, what we think local leaders in North Carolina can do right now uh, to help ensure better broadband in their community. And then finally, uh, we'll have a resource page. Some of it will be familiar because uh, it includes the organization that put on this webinar. All right. So I mentioned that this has been a year, a couple years long effort for the League of Municipalities. It really kicked off with a report that uh, I co-authored with Joanne Hovis, uh, who may be familiar to some on this call. She works uh, for CTC Technology and Energy uh, up in Washington, D.C., and this report was one we called Leaping the Digital Divide, and it basically uh, was uh, released two years ago now, but it lays the legal and policy landscape for us pursuing these changes at the state legislature. So all of this that I'm about to talk about really feeds back into this effort that started over two years ago with the release of this report. Let's just take a moment and talk about what is broadband. Uh, Some people think it might be the type of technology that's used to deliver data, but the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, actually defines broadband by speed. Uh, And the speed, the way it's measured, is in megabits per second. Right now, it's 25 over 3. I'm going to explain a little bit more about that in just a moment. So a megabit is 1,000 kilobits. It's simply just a a unit of measurement. Uh, The 25 slash 3 refers to download and upload speeds. 25 megabits per second as a download speed is the minimum that the FCC says you should have in order to qualify as having broadband service. You also, at the same time, would need to have a minimum of 3 megabits per second upload speed. Uh, You might be asking, why are the upload speeds slower than download speeds? Uh, And the answer to that is that the network engineers, uh, really when the internet was more in its early stages optimized the networks and their speeds to prioritize downloading. And think about how you use the internet often. It makes a lot of sense to prioritize downloads. When what you're doing is pulling, you know, you're surfing the web or pulling emails down off the internet, that makes a lot of sense. When you're doing more advanced uh, internet functions, that between download and upload makes less sense and I think we've all probably experienced really long upload wait times uh, during this particular pandemic Uh, so that's something just to be mindful of this is important because when you talk about gigabit speeds what's meant by that is not just that it's a super fast speed it's a thousand megabits per second that is a way faster than the FCC says you should have to qualify as broadband. So it doesn't just have the speed, but it also has what's called symmetrical speeds, which means those download and upload speeds are the same. The technology that's used most to deliver uh, gigabit speeds right now is fiber. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But beforehand, I just wanna point out, whenever you're talking about policy with decision makers, what we find with our own state legislators and we talk to them is they really wanna know data. They want to know who has internet and who doesn't, according to the FCC. You can look at this map, which is a couple years old now, uh, but what it does show is that even a couple of years ago, it looks like most of North Carolina would be covered by uh, minimum broadband speeds, according to the FCC. This data you've probably heard about, it is grossly overstated. Uh, And therefore, the actual broadband uh, service that you see on the ground is not nearly as comprehensive as what this map would show. We have to make that point with lawmakers. Uh, They are not as well versed in this as we are, and they really don't understand and they get frustrated by the lack of good data. This is the best data we have, and it's completely inaccurate. So uh, that's just something to keep in mind whenever you see numbers, uh, particularly when it's using FCC data right now. So I mentioned that fiber is a type of technology that uh, can deliver gigabit speeds. It is future-proof in that regard because it has the capability of serving uh, very, very fast speeds that some of which we haven't even imagined uses for yet. Um, And so when you're talking about making investments for the long term, fiber seems to be a good choice. Not only can it grow with our needs, but it has enormous bandwidth that has symmetrical speeds. That's really important when you're trying to uh, say transfer a file, um, which I think a lot of us have probably had to do since we've started working from home. I know in my case, my office had much better internet than my home does right now and it was much quicker. Um, Fiber also benefits from not having interference, such as interference from the weather. Um, It doesn't have to be amplified and it doesn't corrode. Uh, So there are a lot of benefits to fiber technology. Cable, however, is probably the way that most of us get broadband, at least at home. Uh, It is ubiquitous, and so that's a big reason why uh, most of us access broadband through cable as opposed to fiber. It does have larger bandwidth than all other technologies besides fiber, um, though it still has some limitations, and one that you might be familiar with is what we call rush hour slowdowns. Uh, that is something that's a lot like a, uh, a highway at rush hour time. You can imagine all the cars getting on, and the highway doesn't get any bigger. And so, everybody, as you add cars and add cars, it all slows down. The same thing happens uh, at, you know, it used to be, you'd say, in the evenings when everybody got home from work and they all started streaming at home or using it for homework or whatever the uses were. Now, I think these rush hour slowdowns often happen throughout the day since we're all, uh, a lot of us are working. Working from home and using internet that way. But that's uh, the features of cable as a technology. DSL is another type of technology you hear about. These of course are your old copper phone lines. They have been retrofitted and they were one of the early retrofitted technologies to try to get internet uh, service out to people. It is ubiquitous, but it is obsolete now. Uh, the, the technology has a lot of challenges in delivering fast speeds uh, and reliable speeds. It's very limited with respect to bandwidth. It is subject to interference, and there are signal loss that happens as well. And so uh, this is something that you will often see talked about as uh, one way to deliver broadband. But I think most people, certainly those who have DSL uh, internet now, would agree that this does Doesn't suit their needs uh, in the modern day. There is also another technology I wanted to draw your attention to and that's fixed wireless. Uh, This is a technology where it's a wireless technology so you have an antenna that's sitting on a base station that's positioned near the customer. It will beam out wireless signals uh, directly into a customer's building Um, and it's often used as what we call last mile solution. That's that last little bit that you have to do to get uh, the service from the bigger the bigger pipes and the bigger wires that run between cities and even between countries uh, on down to the premises. So it does have some use right now in lower density areas. Uh, this technology as well has limited bandwidth. It's subject to rush hour slowdowns, and you need a line of sight for it to work. Uh, that means weather can interfere and uh, anything like a, a tree um, or other buildings can interfere with that signal too. Uh, reliability is definitely a concern with fixed wireless. So uh, we take all of that knowledge uh, about how broadband is defined, where it exists and where it doesn't, and how you deliver it, and then you start thinking, you know, for uh, a policy, what makes sense uh, in terms of really getting ubiquitous broadband access uh, across our state and, and really across our nation. I'm focused on North Carolina, but these conversations, you all know, are happening everywhere in the country. When we did our research, we kept seeing a model that seemed to be successful in lots of different areas. And we thought it was one, once we learned more about it, that could work here in North Carolina. And this is a public-private private partnership model. The reason it works so well is because you have a revenue stream, first and foremost. There is money coming in when people use the infrastructure and pay for a service to be delivered over that infrastructure. So you have a revenue stream. That's what you need for a public-private partnership. If there's no revenues coming in, these partnerships do not work. Uh, But they are often utilized when you have really high costs for building infrastructure. Um, In addition, in this particular case, because broadband is relatively new as a a basic infrastructure service, that public partner often lacks the expertise on how to operate the system. That's something that the private sector does really well right now. But what the private sector maybe doesn't do quite as well is serving unprofitable areas. Uh, That's really the whole crux of this debate. When you have private... Uh, profit-driven entities that have to make, in many cases, returns to their shareholders, it is very difficult for them to justify serving these unprofitable areas. Um, This can happen in an urban area where, uh, like I live here in Raleigh, and there are definitely places uh, really close to where I live that have no uh, broadband service available. And a lot of that uh, can be addressed through these public-private partnerships when the local uh, public officials are demanding some sort of inclusion uh, in those broadband plans. And so you can get that through public-private partnerships. They call it digital inclusion. Uh, what you also see as a benefit to public-private partnership is that these public entities historically will invest in infrastructure that has a long lifespan and has wide community benefits, uh, roads water and sewer systems, electric systems, natural gas, all of this fits the same mold that broadband does today. So we have a big history in doing uh, basic infrastructure at the local level and often in a public private partnership. So you might be asking, who are the typical partners? Well, of course you have the internet service provider who is uh, the private provider. Your public partner could be a local government like the city officials I represent, or maybe it's county officials, could also be schools or public colleges and universities. They often, and especially in the state of North Carolina, they do definitely have connectivity uh, through through broadband, I mean, sorry, through fiber. Uh, and so that's something that can be capitalized on because it already exists in that community. We also envision these partnerships and we see them elsewhere involving nonprofit partners as well. These could be your electric and telephone cooperatives, uh, MCNC, which you'll hear from later in this webinar. Um, there could be other nonprofit providers as well that can come in as partners. So, the legal landscape in North Carolina for this type of partnership, if it involves a city or a county or any kind of local entity, the law uh, is not only different, but it's really gray uh, whether these partnerships can happen or not. So, what we determined at the League, uh, and especially in my group, which uh, exists to advocate on behalf of cities, was that there was a need to clarify this law uh, to, to make it very, very clear that any local broadband. And locally owned broadband assets could be Uh, utilized in the context of a public-private partnerships. Um, So we set about last year recognizing that, uh, and last year being 2019, to uh, pursue a bill and to pursue changes in that law. I don't have it listed on this presentation, so you'll need to take out your pens and write down the bill number that I'm about to say, and this will let you look it up and see what we thought the legal changes were that were needed. The bill is called House Bill 431. FIBER NC ACT. And FIBER is an acronym, so it's all in all caps. House Bill 431 was the effort of this, or the culmination of this effort. And what it would do at its very basic is allow local governments, both cities and counties, to build broadband infrastructure and to lease it to a private internet service provider and that private provider would actually operate the service. They would do the interface with the customers, the local government just does what it does best which is to build and in some cases they would maintain that broadband infrastructure. Uh, The electric co-ops, you'll see on this slide, I mentioned they needed statutory changes, too. They were successful in getting those changes in the last legislative session in 2019. So they are, for legal purposes, they have all the authority they need to be off to the races uh, to start uh, utilizing their infrastructure, which is significant, right? They've got telephone poles, um, or in their cases it would be electric poles, uh, that can be used to string any kind of fiber uh, in between. Additionally, they own the right-of-way, and that's a huge cost to building these systems. They go to a lot of places that the current incumbent telecom providers don't. So electric crops are a real key to uh, fitting this policy puzzle together. We would love for local governments to be able to partner with them. They are not there yet. So we have a long way to go still in the General Assembly. But what House Bill 431 asked for were these three things. Uh, For local governments to have the ability to raise money for broadband infrastructure. Uh, And that could include raising taxes or implementing new taxes and borrowing. Uh, Then they need the authority to spend it. Um, that's not given uh, in our law just yet. So they need the authority to raise money and then spend it. It's the second one that really prevents local governments now from receiving grants. Uh, This could be a grant from a federal source or a state source. Um, We know there are a lot of these broadband grant programs out there, but local governments in North Carolina, because they lack the authority to spend that money on broadband infrastructure, they can't even accept the grants. It's a real limitation right now. Uh, and then the third thing that needed clarity in our law was the ability for local governments to lease this infrastructure to either the private or nonprofit entities that would operate uh, those systems and profit from using that infrastructure. So. Uh, we, we usually take this point in time to pivot to what you can do. I've just told you what, what local governments can't do um, unless they get these changes, but I guess what I should pause and go back a slide for, where I should pause here is just to kind of give you an update on where we are in this effort right now. This bill is still eligible for consideration um, in this legislative session, which just gets underway today. Uh, The legislature is back in session as of today, focusing on things that are not related directly to COVID-19. I can tell you that broadband, because of this crisis, has been elevated. There is a lot of discussion about the lack of broadband access in North Carolina right now. Uh, A lot of it is focused on school children, um, and you would expect that, I think, given the nature of this crisis and what we foresee for the future. Uh, There have been solutions that legislators have really gravitated towards. Hotspots on school buses is one of those solutions. I think all of us could agree uh, that that's uh, important right now, and it's an important gap-filling measure uh, when there's no other another choice out there. Uh, but something that's more long-term and a real viable solution like what we're proposing with House Bill 431, that's the long-term direction we need to go. And we're trying to make sure that legislators understand that. The bill sponsors for House Bill 431 are members of the Republican leadership in our North Carolina House. They have uh, told me as recently as last week that they are committed to trying to push this bill forward in this legislative session. So we are continuing to build the momentum and certainly this crisis has uh, contributed to that momentum uh, going forward. All right. so let's talk a little bit now about what strategies local governments can do uh, even given the the pretty narrow and restrictive legal environment we operate in right now. A lot of what I've listed on this slide is really more an effort to speed up private internet service providers and to um, make sure you can streamline their ability to put systems in in your communities. Um, there may be some permitting that can be streamlined if you know an internet service provider is uh, coming into your community. Um, depending on if it's a really high volume, you could pre-qualify those inspectors, but certainly giving access, or, and inspectors would be on your end of it, sorry, I should clarify who they are, on your end to make sure that the inspections of the infrastructure after it's been installed um, can be completed in a timely way. The other things on here are uh, providing access to data that you might already collect in the local government, uh, providing access to space in your government buildings, Um, and then this last one, recruiting customers. That's one that I really want to focus on here um, in just a moment, so we'll come back to that. The General Assembly can also do some other things um, they could require installation of fiber anytime there's a new building going in. That is not required under our building code, but that's certainly a step that the legislature could take. Uh, Dig once is a policy that really applies for the types of activities like Uh, for example, road construction, whenever you're digging anyway to move utilities, let's say, for a road widening, why not put conduit in? This is something a lot of our local governments in North Carolina are doing right now, and it's something that our State Department of Transportation has instituted as a policy. So that's something that the legislature could mandate. It is going on anyway, though, uh, even without that mandate. There are lots of other things on there. Um, You'll see a grant program, which is something our legislature did for the first time last year. Uh, We now have, it's called the Great Grants. You've probably heard of it. Uh, And then a variety of other things. Giving subsidies for low-income subscribers. That's one that has a proven success, a track record of success in other places in the country. Um, So for local leaders, we always say the first thing you need to do is really do your homework. Start learning the issue, learning the technology. Uh, Utilize us at the League to connect you with experts so you can uh, have good advice. Know the limitations of your community, but also of the technology, what you might be asking for. And go ahead and inventory all the local assets that you already own. I guarantee you, if you're a city that has a road network, you have fiber because it connects your traffic signals. If you have police uh, or fire, any kind of rescue, you've probably got fiber because that connects your public safety communications. Uh, there's a lot of fiber already out there and so knowing where it all is is really important before you think about entering into these public-private partnerships. So going back to the the point that I wanted you to hold in your mind about recruiting customers, local leaders in other areas of the country when they think about undertaking these kinds of public-private partnerships have done a lot to lead their community's efforts. They know where the community provide partners are going to be, and where big customers could come from, uh, big internet users, because that's going to be very attractive to a private internet service provider that you know, they may not need to return any kind of profits to shareholders, but they still need to make a profit. Uh, and so you can partner with them to help uh, figure that out. You can map the service area. You can identify funding, even if you can't put in any money yourself because of our restrictive laws, if there's other money out there, you can help that private internet service provider along. Um, Educating the public about all of this, that is huge. I think if you ask the average person on the street, they would tell you right now, we want broadband. We don't care where it comes from. But if their public uh, local government is going to be involved, they probably need to start caring a little bit about how that deal is structured. And then doing something Uh, that happens in a lot of communities in North Carolina already, uh, surveying your community for potential subscribers, that is a huge game changer when you're trying to attract a private internet service provider. We also ask local governments uh, at the League, we're an advocacy organization, so we ask you to advocate for better public policy, like having House Bill 431 move forward. Make sure you can describe the need, use what data you have, especially if you've done any of these local surveys, that's really huge. Show the investment that you're already making, and then know what you need in addition uh, to that investment. Bring all your partners to the table when you're having these discussions. It means a lot more when you have the chamber president sitting by your side making the case for better broadband policy. Uh, And then emphasize your experience in building other big infrastructure. That is a huge thing uh, that we have found when we talk with state legislators. Um, they, They need to know these things. So this is my last slide. Uh, it talks about uh, resources that we have found to be very useful. We have a broadband infrastructure office in this state, NC Bio. Um, they are a wonderful resource, and they provide lots of free technical assistance on some of these things I just mentioned. Uh, they'll help local communities through that. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance has been a wonderful resource for us. They're based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, They provide a wealth of information uh, for on this issue for really for a local government. Uh, and public uh, facing uh, organizations. Finally, uh, Click NC, which is probably an old name when this slide was created, that was before you had branded as NC Broadband Matters. So, uh, this I really, what I mean by that last bullet point is this very organization putting on the webinar. Uh, they've been a tremendous partner and a, a wealth of information as well. There's a lot of expertise in that organization. So I've just talked fast and for uh, quite a while, uh, Krista, I will turn it back
0: to you. Well, Erin, you did get a couple of really sharp questions. So I'd like to pass on at least two of those to you before we move on to Brian. And of course, folks can keep um, sending in their questions throughout the session. So one question, things have really changed in this COVID-19 pandemic environment. Will there be a push, do you think, to require colleges and universities to um, understand students' digital literacy before they arrive on campus um, or before they start the semester, if things change up all for us like they did in California. The questioner asks or says, right now, academic institutions wait until a student has started class to understand that they may have a gap in their digital literacy skills or their access to a device. Any info you can offer on that one? Sure.
1: So uh, I, I don't know specifics. I, I think what the questioner asked sounds like very good best practices. Uh, our university system uh, and local public school systems in this state, I think, have been deliberately quiet as they've been formulating their plans um, for the fall. And so uh, we have not heard many announcements here in this state yet.
0: Okay. Um, And one other question, again, about uh, whether or not the pandemic has changed legislators' opinion about the prohibition around municipal broadband. Anything you wanna add on that topic? So I guess I'll say
1: as as a starting point, I think when you talk to most legislators, when we talk to most legislators on both sides of the aisle, they're supportive of this policy. I don't think we really need to convince them of the need. The roadblock is the big incumbent telecoms uh, and I'll name them specifically, Charter uh, or Spectrum. You may know them as Spectrum. Uh, CenturyLink and AT and T. Those are the three big ones in North Carolina that are large financial contributors to legislators, uh, legislative leadership's campaigns, uh, and they oppose this policy. So it's not necessarily a, a task where you change individual legislators' minds. It's changing leadership. Uh, in their minds, because this, this is a, a pretty mighty uh, counter counterforce to what we're trying to do. Um, I don't know, to be honest, if this crisis, even though it seems terrible, uh, and it's really highlighted what had been a fissure before, uh, beforehand, I don't know if it's enough to push it over the edge, but I think it's definitely contributing. And there are discussions underway at the legislature amongst individual legislators uh, that the, the time has come. So, I think it it, it can't hurt what we see at this session. Um, You know, I think we're gonna give it our best try. I don't know, it's it's an election year and I think it does come down to the money that these big telecom uh, companies put into the process.
0: It's tough. Well, thank you for an excellent presentation. Just wanted to remind folks that all of the presentations are available in the handout section. Um, I'll invite Aaron to go ahead and close her webcam and Brian to go ahead and open up his presentation. Thank you, Aaron.
2: Hi, everybody. Forgive me if my business partner joins us. My kitty cat has refused to stay out of my office for this, so uh, I think we should have everything now. I accepted the invitation to share my screen. make sure everybody can see my presentation now. So good afternoon, everybody. My uh, name is Brian Rathbone, and I am a partner with Broadband Catalysts. Um, traditionally, I have been a programmer, technology consultant, and novelist, uh, and uh, broadband planning was not ever in my uh, sights as a career. But in 2002, uh, I got the opportunity to work from home and I purchased a home in Rutherford County, North Carolina after talking with my uh, real estate agent to let her know that uh, I was a telecommuter and that I needed to uh, work from home and that I was going to need internet access. And uh, we discussed it and she said, no problem, you can get cable, you can get DSL and you can get fixed wireless. And I bought the home uh, only to find out afterwards that unfortunately she was incorrect and I I don't really blame her for that. Um, The DSL deployment was full The cable stopped about a half mile away, and even if it had come by my house, I was more than a 1,000 feet from the road, so that was going to be prohibitive. Uh, And the fixed wireless was blocked by trees on my neighbor's property. Um, I'm actually talking to you over that fixed wireless connection now because my neighbor eventually clear-cut his property, uh, which got me the line of sight that I needed. So that is what brought me to being a broadband planner. Um, In 2010, I was working with a nonprofit fixed wireless provider in Rutherford County, uh, putting up fixed wireless on water towers throughout the county using an Appalachian Regional Commission grant. Uh, It was that work that led me to work with the ENC Authority and the North Carolina Digital Infrastructure Office when it was NC Broadband and my role was Technical Assistance Director for Western North Carolina, um, helping to establish or uh, enhance broadband planning efforts in 31 counties in North Carolina. In 2014, I returned to the private sector uh, and having worked with the North Carolina Digital Infrastructure Office to produce a nationwide broadband map, um, I went to the next level after returning and creating broadband Catalyst to create a nationwide broadband map uh, that looked at the FCC's broadband deployment data. And specifically when I say deployment, what I mean is that the providers are saying in these areas shown in the different colors that within a reasonable time, 10 days, 10 business days or so that they could deploy service um, to someone who requested it in those areas. It has been mentioned previously that that data is largely inaccurate through overstatement. One household in a census block with a given technology will enable um, all uh, the entire census block to be indicated as served. Um, The one One area where I find the FCC data is very accurate is where it indicates that there is no service, Um, but uh, there are a lot of situations and it's not just that one household in a census block. Um, It can be that you're too far from the road for the cable service, or it could be that it doesn't go to your side of the road, or that the DSL uh, deployment is full as it was in my case. There are fixed wireless technologies um, that are emerging that do go through trees. They're not as prevalent in use right now, but we're starting to see an increase in that. Um, but the, just the foliage factor makes it extremely difficult to map out where fixed wireless is available um, as opposed to some of these uh, wireline services. So it was also mentioned that the other side of the data equation, when you're talking about, you know, um, Availability being one thing, but demand is another part of it. And uh, when Broadband Catalyst was working with the EPA, USDA, and Appalachian Regional Commission on the Cool and Connected program, one of the um, cities that we went to was Haleyville, Alabama. We used uh, Broadband Catalyst as a survey instrument for um, broadband surveys that is available to everybody for free on our website. That was what was used in Haleyville to survey uh, their citizens. Uh, The yellow dots in that map indicate citizens who had inadequate service, uh, and the red dots indicated citizens who uh, did not have broadband service available to them at all. Uh, And during that process, we also collected information from them about what their budgets would be uh, and things along those lines. And that data in aggregate was what ended up launching a $6.1 million fiber to the home uh, deployment through Freedom Fiber and partially funded by the Appalachian Regional Commission. So this allows us to identify areas uh, where there's unserved demand and so When we try to take that and compare it back to the FCC data, it got a little bit difficult because we were looking at points versus census blocks. So the next thing that we did was take our point data and aggregate it up to the census block level so that we had a common granularity that we were dealing with. And at the very least, we could go back to funding agencies uh, and regulatory agencies and let them know that even though the FCC data indicates these areas as being served, we have citizen source. Data that um, contradicts that, or in some ways enhances that data set to say, okay, it's partially served. And that's an extremely valuable thing to know about an area because if you're in an area that's served, then Hopefully you have what you need. And if you're in in an area that's completely unserved, then the FCC data is going to indicate that and there'll be funding available to you. But if you're one of those people who's unfortunate enough to live in a partially served area, to live in an area where some of the folks in the neighborhood have service and others don't, um, that's probably the longest term, most difficult problem to solve because the funds right now are allocated to go where there is no service meeting that 25 down, three up, criteria. So the other side of the the data equation besides um, availability and uh, demand is, does the network actually perform when you're using it? And this is one of the data sets that I struggled with for quite a long time, trying to get some indication of what the performance of these networks looked like. And it was only recently um, I discovered that Measurement Lab Uh, had made all of their speed test data uh, publicly available via the Google Cloud Platform and BigQuery. Um, That means that we can query data for the entire country uh, very quickly. I think I queried seven uh, terabytes of data in under 30 seconds to produce this map that shows the average download speeds um, for networks uh, throughout the United States. And the next map that I'm gonna show you actually Uh, maps out the latency Uh, and it does not paint a pretty picture of our networks. Uh, Latency is the amount of time it takes to make a round trip um, to wherever it is you're communicating. So as uh, Aaron was mentioning before, when we have those traffic um, uh, events and and we get those daily slowdowns when, when everybody's on at one time, Uh, Not only do we have traffic, but it increases the amount of time it takes to get there and back. And there can be other things inherent in our Internet connectivity um, that introduce this latency just as a regular thing. It's not traffic related. Anybody who's utilized uh, geosynchronous satellite Internet, for example, is probably more than familiar with what the impact of high latency is on a lot of different Internet applications. Some things will just simply not work if the Internet is that latent. Um, So what we're doing here is we're essentially trying to capture all of the different data sets, all of which are flawed, all of which can be argued uh, and questioned really um, legitimately. Uh, and even if we improve those data sets, there's, there's an effort right now uh, to get the FCC to move toward address level data um, as opposed to census block level data. That won't solve the problems. It will get us farther down the road that we need to go down, but it is not going to be the end all be all for data. Uh, we're still gonna have to deal with weakness in that data. We're still gonna have to ground truth that data, and we're still gonna have to compare it against other things. And that to me has been the biggest challenge is that we have lots of data sets. Uh, We have the FCC 477 data. We have survey data from different places. We have speed test data from measurement labs. But it really isn't until you You know, you can go to all these different maps and visualize them, look at them online, see a general idea. This map is useful to a certain extent. But it's only when you start to be able to compare it against different data sets that things become more useful. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the speed test data before I go into data comparison. So as you start to get down to a little bit um, more granular level, you can really see that each one of these circles I'm representing in the speed test data represents a node from a provider. So that might be a CenturyLink node, an AT&T node, a charter node, SkyRunner, any of these different ones. The green ones on average perform well, the red ones on average don't. And if nothing else, this gives us a way to go back and work with providers to identify areas of weakness uh, and to work with granting sources to say, you know what, I know the FCC data indicates that this area is well served, but the performance data argues strongly against that. Uh, And since this data is in real time, we can watch the progress uh, as it goes along. So if things are fixed, we should see the results within this data. But like I said about the the FCC data having weakness, speed test data has a lot of weaknesses, many things that can be questioned. Um, If I was working for a provider and you came to me with speed test data, I would have a lot of valid concerns about the accuracy of that data. So it's really when we get to the big data standpoint where we have a lot of results that we can start to track those trends and understand you know, just what the impacts of that are. When you get really into the local area, that's when you can start to identify specific neighborhoods that are seeing problems. And I think that this is a really useful thing that we're going to continue to use at Broadband Catalyst to shine a light on areas where other data says it's fine and speed test data, speed test data indicates that there are problems. So when you start to compare that data, um, part of the work that Broadband Catalyst does is helping uh, broadband providers apply for USDA ReConnect grants, uh, statewide grants, such as the North Carolina Great Grant Program. And we start comparing different geographies and uh, things to the FCC data to try to determine which census blocks will be served, how many homes are in those census blocks. And this map that I'm showing here is, is from a similar effort uh, that we did after we were contacted by the University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill in trying to look at where their student and faculty bodies were in relation to broadband. How many of those folks that they sent home um, based on the FCC 477 data have insufficient access to broadband? And that's where I really think the motion will be over the next couple of years is us developing tools to take all these disparate data sets that exist in their own silos, bring them together in an analytical environment, a big data environment where we can query it, we can produce maps, we can produce analysis, and this is going to give us a better view. Um, It's not going to be perfect, but it will continue to evolve in that direction. So again, my name is Brian Rathbone. Uh, I'm with Broadband Catalysts, and uh, I would uh, welcome any questions that you guys have. I'm going to keep it a little bit short to leave uh, some of the other presenters time, and then we'll have some answer, uh, time for question and answer. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, that was incredibly informative, and do keep your questions coming in using the chat function, or if you've joined us by phone, send an email to info at nchartsgigabit.com and we have someone standing by monitoring that, monitoring that inbox. I'm gonna go ahead and invite Stephanie Jane Edwards to share her screen and video. And thanks again, Brian.
3: Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? And can you see a screen with a map of North Carolina on it? Yes. Okay. Great. So I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, MCNC and some of the things that MCNC has been doing to work together with other organizations to address broadband access, especially in the Context we've had recently of COVID-19 um, And so what I've got pulled up here is an article that came out last week um, That you might find interesting and we'll probably find a way to share that in our resources um, It is uh, an article by EdNC Interviewing our CEO Jean Davis on MCNC's work and also gaps in Rural broadband access, particularly as it pertains to education. So, MCNC is a nonprofit organization. It's based in, it's headquartered in Research Triangle Park, and it um, has an underground fiber optic network uh, that you see here in the map across most of the counties in the state. And along that network, it provides uh, a middle-mile backbone, which can be used to serve communities uh, on last-mile uh, broadband, and also it extends the internet at high bandwidth capacity to our community anchor institutions. And that includes all of our community colleges, our university system, K-12, through public schools, Um, as well as some public safety, including the state highway patrol, and uh, libraries, nonprofits, and research institutions. And so um, I've been really interested in that work because I came in um, from a broadband experience on mapping the uh, broadband availability across North Carolina when the NTIA was collecting data for the National Broadband Map. And I um, got the opportunity um, in that experience to see the real difference that it makes um, to have good data on broadband access and often the complexities when your data doesn't match what you see on the ground. Um, and so um, getting involved at MCNC has given me the opportunity to see how critical it can be to partner with anchor institutions who are really on the front lines of what we call in digital inclusion. You heard that term from Erin. Um, getting the uh, internet to these anchor institutions is very critical for all of the roles that they play in the fabric of their communities. But it's also important to work with them on getting that bandwidth through the anchor institutions to their surrounding uh, homes and other parts of their community. And that's something we've been uh, particularly challenged with in the um, kind of pivoting that everyone is doing right now to equip people uh, in the communities to have broadband bandwidth at their homes and some businesses. NTNC does not serve homes and businesses directly with internet and it doesn't really seek to compete in the marketplace like a for-profit company would with other broadband providers. But what it does is listen to a lot of these anchor institutions, find out what their needs are and try to equip them for the goals that they have, whether it's a computer lab or a Wi Fi setup or um, digital learning classes. And there's definitely a lot of work right now around um, equipping our education institutions to utilize the bandwidth they have um, to uh, expand outside the walls of their campuses. Um, so right now, um, we're hearing from a lot of educational organizations, a lot of schools, um, K-12 and higher education, on um, how can we leverage this bandwidth since our campuses are closed right now to get people access so that they can learn from home. And we're trying to understand projects that they're doing and understand projects that uh, local governments are doing because MCNC um, provides broadband to local government as well. And they've been very energetic on on coming up with ideas to try to address uh, broadband access, particularly in rural communities where people don't automatically have an option for adequate broadband access at home. So we're hearing a lot of projects about Wi-Fi that you can drive up to in parking lots of libraries and schools and downtown Wi-Fi projects and I've heard that MCNC is um, working really hard right now to help some of our healthcare organizations and schools address new security questions and find new security solutions that involve their extension of bandwidth out outside their campuses, sometimes for the first time. Um, And I think that uh, some of MCNC's team has also been very busy equipping people with uh, remote collaboration tools and VPN infrastructure and then also finding some places on the network where existing infrastructure can be revamped to increase capacity for those folks. Um, And one thing I did want to mention since I'm talking about uh, the partnership MCNC has with North Carolina's anchor institutions is that um, we, uh, we benefit greatly in our coordination by having good data on where anchor institutions are and what their situation is for broadband access, what their broadband-related resources are uh, for the anchor institution and through the anchor institution. And so um, in my experience in the past with collecting this data, um, each state was collecting this data when the NTIA gathered it for the national broadband map But since in recent years, the FCC has kind of discontinued that practice, which is kind of unfortunate because I think right now in uh, in the COVID-19 crisis, a lot of states are wishing they had a resource about where anchor institutions are and what bandwidth and broadband resources are established at those sites. Um, But fortunately, I've had the opportunity to kind of continue a version of that inventory at MCNC because it helps MCNC stay informed along the way, and it's also um, something really helpful to our partners, including the state broadband office, and so I'm hoping to um, be gathering new information about the situation at those anchor institutions as we um, progress with Potentially, some really new and exciting solutions along the way um, that were kind of born out of necessity in this um, pandemic, um, like kind of getting a new flexibility uh, at our education and other uh, anchor institutions that um, that. Enable their bandwidth through uh, what's called an E-rate program, which is kind of a a federal discount program for educational institutions, and um, so there were some pretty strict rules around that, but we've been working with anchor institutions and um, policy leaders to um, relax some of those regulations so that uh, bandwidth can be repurposed and used outside the walls of the anchor institutions. Um, So uh, we've really been hearing from a lot of those organizations and local government, and some of them are doing some really cool things. And um, I was hearing from the um, McDowell County, um, a nonprofit there called Connect McDowell has been leading some really exciting uh, efforts in their county, and, and a couple of other counties have been looking at this as well, the idea of using anchor institutions as um, as nodes or jumping off points for last mile broadband connectivity. And so that's a, a really interesting prospect that MCNC has started uh, working together um, to hear more about these projects and find out how a research an education network like MCNC's could um, contribute to changes like that.
2: Um, and then
3: uh, we've also been staying really busy uh, in partnership with the healthcare sector of North Carolina. Um, MCNC um, gets broadband to nonprofit healthcare institutions and um a lot of those have been scrambling and uh, to increase preparedness. and we also serve the um, public health agencies in counties across the state. And so there have been a lot of new efforts around digital devices and um, and testing and communications and security. So, Um, So we've been doing quite a bit of that. I just wanted to share this map we have to give you an idea of the um, healthcare organizations involved in uh, broadband-based preparedness and uh, all of the other needs that people are coming to them for right now. This is a map of the North Carolina Telehealth Network. which is using MCNC's infrastructure as well as some uh, of North Carolina DIT departments' infrastructure. And um, so we have uh, the public health departments, mental health centers, community health centers, and um, a lot of non-rural urban clinics who are involved in that as well. Um, so there's a lot happening right now in this area. and. Um, and I think that research and education networks like MCNC are a really critical piece of that puzzle. And they have a lot to offer and they have a lot of listening to do. MCNC is doing a lot of listening right now and just trying some new things. Um, but we're also not the sufficient piece of the puzzle. And so middle mile is like your. Your highway lanes, but you need desperately to connect that to the local roads and get bandwidth out to the individual people in all of these communities. And I think that we we have a lot to benefit from if we include our community anchor institutions in the conversation along the way. But um, I will turn it back over to you, Krista.
0: Thank you, Stephanie and Jane. That was great. Um, and before we go to Deb, we just have two quick questions here. What's your web address so people can find out more about MCNC's history? And then could um, you say anything about whether or not MCNC has any plans for network expansion? So for example, all 100 counties might have access one day to your dark, dark
3: fiber. Sure. Um, so MCNC's Homepage is at www.mcnc.org, and there's all kinds of information there about the history of, of the organization going back to, um, I think, 1981. Um, and there are continuing efforts to expand the middle mile network um, that you saw on the maps earlier. Um, but uh, there, oh hi, <laughs> so uh, uh, there, there was just recently, let me see if I can share my screen, I may not be able to bring that back up, but there uh, was recently an expansion of the fiber network from Stanford to Farmville in the eastern part of the state, and then partnership with an, another fiber organization in the western part of the state to connect Forest City. Um, down the south part of western North Carolina up to Dobson, which is in the northern part. Um, and so that's done in collaboration with a number of other organizations to kind of be sensitive to existing infrastructure that's there. Um, let me see if I can... There you go. Um, here's that forest city to, to Dobson. Uh, piece that's new, which I mentioned, and there there are efforts to work on filling in other gaps. But there are some very um, active fiber organizations in the state in some of these areas, and so we uh, MCNC works with them to um, to coordinate. And the the um, desired effect, the hope, would be that MCNC. Uh, would not be counterproductive for those organizations and the locations that they already serve. And so the desire, um, and this is where better data comes in, um, the desire is to address gaps. And so we want to have data that tells us accurately where those gaps and where those needs really are so that we're not kind of encroaching on the success that has already been established particularly by North Carolina-based broadband providers.
0: All right, well, very good. Thank you again for joining us. Um, And I will invite Deb Watts to turn on her webcam, and I'll add the slides to the screen here.
4: Yeah. Oops. Well, sorry, folks, it keeps <clears throat> flipping in and out, but if you can see the slides.
0: Yeah, we're all set now.
4: Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you very much, everyone, for being with us. I, I think you've seen that this is <laughs> a data-rich session. And you're going to hear that term a lot. But it's, it's very important. Um, I think I, I'm just going to touch briefly on education and telehealth and how all of this fits together. And I'll take my face off the screen and let you, let you uh, see the slide better. Okay. We've known for a very long time... That some of the biggest returns on broadband comes from education and and health, telehealth, and this le- this problem we're facing now has truly amplified the need to finally solve the broadband gap problems. It's we've we've had this uh, a lot of discussion in the last few weeks since the beginning of March on just how big this problem has been. There have been a lot of meetings and webinars and reports that have been undertaken with, uh, and these are posted by the Rural Center, the Institute for Emerging Issues, the UNC School of Government's NC Impact Initiative. Um, those sessions have been recorded, and we pro- we will provide links to those for those of you who have missed them because you've been fighting other kinds of alligator- viral alligators. Um, we-, we will post those on our website and make it easy for you to get to them and watch them at your at your convenience. Um, I'm going to use some of the information from those sessions to frame some of the challenges and opportunities that that online education and telehealth present for communities. I think if you look, I mean, you can read these data where almost over a quarter of the people in North Carolina don't have a computer in their homes. Most of them are accessing it at work or not at all, 5% 5% that don't have available access of any kind, that's, you know, that's a serious problem. 22% don't have access to any kind of internet, <clears throat> don't subscribe to internet, and 40% don't get broadband. But when you look at this all together, what you really see is that this is a multidimensional problem of capacity, access, and affordability that underlies it. Um <clears throat> Those are the factors that a lot of research has, a lot of data has pointed to as the reasons why broadband isn't being used as completely as it can. It's either not there or just as important people can't afford it or they don't have any interest in it or they don't have the devices to use it. So if you're looking in your community to solve the problem, just looking at the infrastructure won't get you there. You really have to take a holistic view at who's using it, why, who isn't? Why they aren't? And address all of those factors going forward. Next, next slide. <clears throat> okay, the current situation. Just in summary, there are these are largely provider problems that are focused on on this slide. The network new new network planning has slowed down substantially. They have to work with local and state officials to get the permits that they need, and a lot of those people are, are otherwise <clears throat> occupied. The pandemic's creating new challenges. You just It's just hard to get in and out. And it's also limited entry to premises. On our previous um, webinars, we heard from ISPs who talked about difficulties. They're having meeting requests for new service just because it's difficult to send their workers into the homes and this is something that you know will get better but it's it's certainly real now next next slide Erin and Brian both mentioned the uh, the traffic slowdown and data from t- taken from uh, the speed test groups showed that across the country 84 of the 200 largest cities are indeed slowing this down this was discussed in one of our previous webinars. I encourage those of you who didn't attend them to, to go to the links on the NC Broadband Matters website and listen to Doug Dalton's excellent presentation on some of these facts. You look at Winston-Salem, a 41% drop in Internet speeds think about having to how, trying to do business trying to get your classes trying to do anything and this is in an urban setting so the problem is not just in the rural communities next when we're looking at specifically at learning this is the one that's causing a lot of hiccups for people everybody's on a steep learning curve this is a Education is a very, very diverse in terms of delivery, in terms of the type of classes, the institutions, the age group, and we're having to accommodate all of this over an online platform. And I also want to emphasize the scale of the problem. And this really, this really surprised me. <clears throat> but if you add up all the students, K-12, community college, universities, all of the different people who are in formal, some type of formal education across the state and the teachers who are working with them, it adds up to over 25% of the people in North Carolina are directly affected by this uh, pandemic need to shut the schools and do the classes online. That's, that's the size of the problem. And the NC Bio brought this down to the personal level when in a study they did a couple of years ago where the estimate was that almost a quarter of a million households in the state, the students can't do the homework from home. So when we're hearing about some of the, I don't know, out there solutions that are coming up, this is what's driving that. Next slide. I put temporary because these are all temporary solutions. Several of the people today have spoken to about some of these, the school bus solution, the mobile hotspots. There are 280 buses, and they have a half-mile Wi-Fi range. You can go to the link that's on this slide to figure out where the buses are. Um, NC Bio is working with the Department of Public Instruction to figure out the best locations that would meet the most students and also uh, overlap with the the meals on, the meal delivery and the resource delivery that they're needing to do too, especially for K through 12. They're encouraging everyone in the public to use these Wi-Fi hotspots that the buses are providing. Um, it doesn't tend to be available at night, which is one of the problems, but you can go there and you can file for unemployment or you can try to do some telework or your kid can do their homework. It's all available, but You know, again, you get into too many people using it at one time, and you run into problems. There are several organizations that have stepped up. Cramden Institute, uh, in particular, has worked for a long time to get refurbished computers and laptops into the hands of students. Uh, These these links will take you to places where you can get some assistance and help people in your community get assistance on free or low-cost devices. Next slide. The FCC has stepped up and changed rules and said that schools can extend their Wi-Fi to parking lots using their E-Rate subsidized uh, broadband service, but that's only until September. And it does not allow off-campus use of school fiber. So getting to Stephanie's point about community anchor institutions uh, extending their networks being nodes for uh, service extension into the community, That may very well work for certain community anchor institutions, but if the school is operating, to the extent the school operates off of FCC subsidized E-rate service, they may be limited in being able to do that. Next slide. Telehealth. I'm going to switch on to telehealth now. Uh, telehealth has been a real bright spot, and it's obvious to see why that's that's being pushed. The adoption. We we expected telehealth to become a bigger and bigger factor in broadband use as things progress. We didn't know how fast it would move until this uh, pandemic hit. And these are just some of the data that's that's covered in some of the other reports that are on our will be on our web page. There were 42 community health centers in the state. And at the beginning of March, only 10 of them were offering any kind of telehealth services. That's now up to 34. That's a real big sea change for organizations that tend to be conservative in operation. And I found this next one just really funny. There's an 87 year old physician. So, you know, that in and of itself is, is uh, speaks to the need for, for more health resources in some of our rural counties. He will not enter his uh, patient data in electronic formats. He dictates it because he doesn't want to deal with computers. But 80% of his patients he sees now using telehealth at the Roanoke Oak Community Health Center. On the other side of the state, 103 out of 113 clinics in the mountain area health education um, centers have adopted some kind of telehealth. They're either, you know, either full telehealth services or serving cus- uh, patients over the phone. A lot of them are having to use uh, the telephone only because of the poor signal quality. So there's there's bright spots, but there's still problems. Next slide. So there are other promising developments, and this is related to telehealth. There are a lot of changes on the federal level. In North Carolina, parity has been an issue where uh, a lot of providers were willing to provide telehealth services, but they didn't know how to bill for it because there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity in the rules and regulations. Uh, The FCC has stepped in and made some changes. They allow telehealth parity for VA and Medicare services. Um, <clears throat> the North Carolina, Medi- North Carolina handles the, its own Medicaid functions and they've expanded services and allowed payment parity uh, until the state of emergency is lifted, you know, whenever that will be. But part of what's important here is capturing the use and the data and the demand and the efficiencies that are realized. Because when we get to the end of this period, to be able to demonstrate that this is functional and it actually delivers better outcomes at a cost-effective means will be very important to extending the use of the support for telehealth from the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. There's a lot of funding coming. Uh, from the FCC through the CARES Act. this th- I want to emphasize here that this is a very, very dynamic arena, and you need to follow it. And we can certainly help do that with NC Broadband Matters, and the NC Bio is doing a great job of it. The Rural Center is doing a great job of it following legislative updates on CARES and other federal programs. But you've got to be vigilant about paying attention to this because opportunities are going to pop up and you need to be ready to jump on them. Next slide. Next. Okay. Back up, please. So things to take away from, from this real brief look at this. Things you can do, I guess, I don't know. Krista, can you back that up one, please? I'm not sure
0: why it keeps advancing, but it should be on the first slide of Take Home Ideas at this time.
4: Okay. On the local level, uh, some of the things that we can suggest that you do is expanding the signal coverage zones in your public buildings. That could help address the people's access to both the telehealth and the education and just uh, telework and other uses of the Internet. You can promote the use of Wi Fi hotspots through the school. A lot of problems they're running into is that people don't know where these hotspots are. And if you can't go online to look at NC Bio's map, well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? So uh, we can suggest that you use the uh, school's call systems. Churches are very effective at getting messages out, gr- flyers in grocery stores and pharmacies, anything that lets the people in your community know where it can go and get access. And the other thing we're, we're going to strongly encourage you to do is anytime you have a chance where hotspots where hot are being used, where you're implementing any kind of program to address this or capture the data, document it, measure it. Um, it'll give you the information and uh, the ammunition you need when you go in and you say, well, yeah, there is demand here and I can prove it. Look what happens when we put this hot spot up and this is why it was being used and this is the amount of interest that people had. That's part of what you need to move forward. Go ahead, please. Again, monitoring state and local developments and uh, there are opportunities. Look at opportunities to leverage the resources and the technical support that's being offered by these organizations. And I would add MCNC to that because I learned today from Stephanie, they are are clearly moving out of just being the middle-mile provider to being a proactive partner in trying to address some of the needs that communities have and look for creative solutions. So I would add them to the list. And that's it.
0: Thank you. All right. Well, t- terrific. Thank you, Deb. We've had a couple of great questions come in. So, I did want to invite our um, panelists and speakers to come back on for the Q&A. And um, I will start the ra- rapid fire of those questions now. Um, let's see. Uh, to Stephanie Jane. Are you seeing a lot of schools across the state open up their Wi-Fi so students can do their homework in the parking lot? What's the what's all going to look like in September, do you all think?
3: Well, there, there's just so much uncertainty around what, what anything is going to look like in September. Um, so I guess we're, we're hanging in there for the ride, and we're also trying to do everything that MCNC can do um, to to manage all of the change. To to, uh, Jean is talking with policy leaders every day, um, state state leaders and others on what is safe to do. Um, but yes, in the meantime, uh, there are a lot of schools. Um, extending their uh, internet, their wireless access out into the parking lot areas and campuses um, And universities are interested in, in doing the same And they they don't, if, if possible, they don't want to stop there as well So that's been really interesting Thank you so uh, maybe this is for you,
0: Erin. Are local governments required to utilize RFPs in the context of a PPP, public-private partnership?
1: So I, to be clear, uh, sorry, I hesitated to answer the question. I, you can't do it now. Um, so all this would depend on how a law eventually was written. Um you know, if you're just leasing, then a lease is not typically subject to the RFP process the way you would if you were doing typical contracting work in North Carolina. So you've asked a really good question. I think it has a very complicated answer, and it would just depend on which, um, the way you structured that partnership Uh if you're using existing law right now uh, and you were doing a lease, like I said, that that is not typically subject to an RFP process. But it could be um, if something were to pass the legislature along the lines of like the Fiber NC Act I talked about earlier, that might change the, the legal landscape a little bit. So um, it's a good question. It may be premature for the type of partnership I was talking about earlier.
2: If I could add to that a little bit, um, I agree with everything that, that Aaron just said. Um, one of the things that we did a lot at the ENC Authority and NC Broadband was work with folks who had existing infrastructure that was not necessarily broadband infrastructure, but was useful toward the purpose of deploying broadband, such as water towers, fiber fed structures, um, we used county health department in one uh, area, uh, things along those lines, and a uh, public-private partnership that took place in Conover, North Carolina, uh, featured a water tower where there was a community um, outside of town. There were ten or fifteen homes that needed service. The fixed wireless provider needed something up in the air um, that they could see to get them that service, but they couldn't afford to spend the fifteen hundred dollars a month that AT&T or somebody else might command uh, on that tower. So they worked out an arrangement where access to that water tower was given in lieu. Um, or the cost was in lieu of uh, downtown Wi-Fi. So it was something that the WISP could provide inexpensively. Um, and since the asset wasn't switching, wasn't fiber, it wasn't broadband infrastructure, it was just infrastructure that was useful towards broadband, that wasn't a problem in the past.
0: Brian, can we keep going with you real quick? You mentioned a survey for communities to use to gather data on access. And separately, are your data resources at Broadband Catalysts Free and available on your website.
2: Yes, uh, so we have on Broadband Catalyst a free citizen survey. It is specifically designed to survey regarding broadband access and it does geolocation of the uh, end user where they drag a pin over their location on the map to make sure that we're getting an accurate location. Um, address level data, if we just get addresses, it tends to be very inaccurate when we go to geolocate it. And that tool is completely free for everybody to use. Um, Any broadband provider, uh, local, state, federal government agencies that is working towards broadband access, uh, we will provide them access to the data that is collected. Um, So we we hold that data very tight um, for privacy purposes, but for the organizations that are specifically working to provide broadband in those environments, um, we provide that for free. There's some other resources that we're working on right now that aren't complete such as the speed test analysis. Uh, and the analysis that Stephanie Jane and I worked on for UNC Chapel Hill and their students and faculty. Right now, those are manual processes that we would really, really like to automate and put into a web system, Um, but we're probably about 500 hours of labor away from that. So some of it is available for free. Um, If you go to our website, you'll find we have a broadband planning primer and toolkit that was created for the Appalachian Regional Commission. There's a funding guide there uh, that lists different funding sources for broadband and our citizen survey.
0: Terrific. Thank you for those resources. Uh, Can anyone speak to House Bill 1122?
1: I probably can. I don't know. I'm going to have to look it up on my phone unless somebody else can tell me at least what the bill title is. Um. Sorry, there, there's just no, so many okay. bills, it's, it's hard to keep
0: it. it does it just say 1122, does it say House or Senate? Well, we'll give the questioner a chance to elaborate and while we're doing that, um, okay. just sort of a, a big picture question. Um, a state national push for making broadband a utility in the mold of the Rural Electrification Act of the 1930s. Um, any discussion about that? And the questioner did ask, if not, why not? Um, if you care to elaborate on that on that point.
2: to unmute myself uh i definitely have some thoughts on that because i've looked a lot at the fact um utility model around broadband is is a difficult thing to achieve in the world that we live in because it's not a sole source industry you have a power company you know when you have a telephone service they kind of a monopoly on your area so you have a phone company but you don't have an internet company it could be the phone company the cable company cell phone providers satellites uh, there's so many different types of organizations that can provide internet access that if you wanted to make it a utility and say, you're going to provide federal funding um, or state funding for an entity to provide ubiquitous access to broadband, which industry do you pick? And I think that becomes really, really problematic because it's just not something that we can do in a monolithic form. It's more something that has to be done in a partnership. So, The times that I've kind of thought about this of what could we do, I think there's possibility that we could have federal programs that put bounties um, for providers on serving um, homes. uh, Something that any provider in the industry, as long as they meet certain criteria, could come in and provide that service, prove that they've provided that service and then get some subsidy for it. But to go to full on um, Internet as a utility, I think there are just a lot of really deep logistical challenges to that.
0: Thank you, Brian. House Bill Eleven Twenty Two provide affordable broadband access to North Carolina. You want to take it away, Erin? Sure. Yep. And
1: thank you, Krista. Thanks for the clarification. And I I did take a look at it on my phone as well. This is one that uh, I'm familiar with. It includes as part of a bigger um, list of kind of wish list items on broadband. It does include the filed version of the Fiber NC Act, which is something that our organization supported. Um, it's filed by Democrats in the North Carolina House and all of the sponsors, I just looked at it, are Democrats, which means everybody who put their name on that bill is in the minority party right now. Um, so politically, I think that, that means it's uh, probably more of a statement uh, type of legislation than something that would advance. Um, but certainly it's, it's the big statement piece for
0: House Democrats this session. Well, we got another related question about affordability, um, and we are here at 2.30. But, Deb, um, do you want to wrap us up? Is there a central clearinghouse where we can find out about all the broadband grants that you
4: mentioned? There is a central clearinghouse that NDA has put up on any federal dollars related to broadband, and we can have Make France uh in the best place. We can link to that. Um we'll cover in the next in greater detail. But I think what the take home message for that one is that there isn't a single source of funds that are of your um a lot of the solutions lie in recall efforts. Where you put together the an interests and needs and resources of communities, and collectively go after uh, support and pull your pull the resources you have and buy and leverage those. Um, and looking at the, it, it's almost like a patchwork quilt of funding that's out there. There's some money for telehealth. There's some for education. There's some for public housing. There are some for our local government. There's some for small business development. And you try to put together, um, identify projects and needs that relate to those different opportunities for and strategies for that Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. Yeah. Um.
0: And some folks may have had a bit of a hard time hearing that. um, But I did want to encourage all the listeners on today to join us for our next session on June 1st, where we we will take a much deeper dive into grants and funding um, and really have that conversation around solutions and ways to move forward. Um, Any final comments from the panel?
2: Just thank you all oh, for work. taking the time to be here. There's a lot of work left to be done, and uh, I found the information I got from this session helpful, so hopefully everybody else did as well.
0: Well, we certainly thank you all for taking the time, and I will go ahead and put back up on the screen the, um, the details for the final session um, here um, on June 1st. Um, from 1 to two thirty, we will have a conversation about broadband planning from vision to action and it's really about tying it all together uh the how to's um the how to take action the how to move forward um that solutions oriented conversation that i know so many communities are interested in having so please join us on monday june 1st at one o'clock for that you can sign on on our website on at our events page um, and in the meantime please not only share your questions, but share your stories of, of challenges as well as successes. We like to hear about those, and we like to broadcast those to our network. Um, and you can reach us at info at com, or follow us on Twitter. So, again, thank you all so very much for your time today. Thanks again to our panelists and hope to see you on June 1st. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.